today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Uh, Merritt Stiles, education critic for the Ontario NDP, and joins us now. Ms. Stiles, how are you today? I'm great. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for uh, joining us for this uh, important discussion. Uh, Maybe we'll start with what happened yesterday, because there was thousands upon thousands of students across the province who were protesting the Ford government's education or, or new education reality in this province. Your thoughts on what happened yesterday with the protest? Well, uh, I was out uh, actually at a, at a protest in my uh, riding, and uh, I was out there talking to all the high school students. Um, they came from several high schools, actually, to, to meet up, and um, they're, really, uh, they're really worried. They're worried about their own education. They're worried about the kids that are coming after them. Um, they're concerned because what these cuts mean are fewer teachers in classrooms, and so that means bigger class sizes and less one-on-one attention for students, and they're very clear that they think that these cuts will hurt them. Hamilton uh, Wentworth District School Board Chair Alex Johnstone, we just heard from her, saying up to 136 staff will lose their jobs next year because of this new education plan. I thought there wouldn't be any job losses with the Doug Ford government. I mean, we, we heard him say we, we're going to find efficiencies and no one will lose their job. Uh, doesn't seem to be the case. Yeah, what happened, hey? Um, no, there absolutely are going to be job losses. And, you know, they, they, they've been messing around with this a little by talking about it as if when they're just not going to fill positions when somebody retires. But, you know, at the end of the day, if you don't fill those positions, you still have, you know, positions that aren't filled. You have people who don't get jobs. And we have a lot of uh, young teachers looking for jobs. We have a lot of teachers that are, that are currently looking for jobs. And, uh, and those are jobs that won't be filled. So those are job losses. And it's, again, you know, the big impact is going to be really in the classrooms. Uh, We have uh, an education ministry memo that uh, Global News has obtained, and it shows that uh, the province will save $851 million by losing 3,475 full-time teaching positions over the next four years. How devastating will that be? Because those numbers sound devastating to me. Yeah, I mean, thousands, this is what we've been saying for for weeks now, ever since the minister first made her uh, announcement about this, is that we're looking, this is going to be thousands of jobs gone, thousands of teaching positions. It's also going to affect other positions, probably, like we know caretakers, educational assistants, uh, maybe guidance counselors. So it could hit many in many ways. Um, but that's devastating. And, you know, I have to say, I think those numbers are quite conservative still. Because uh, I know that, uh, again, you know, Hamilton went with board, 136. In the Toronto District School Board, it's going to, they're estimating 800. Uh, in the Peel uh, School Board, 500. So, I mean, it adds up really quickly into a whole lot more than that even. And that's, I think, very frightening because um, that means that there isn't going to be a school or a classroom that's not affected. Are you thinking this could be over a billion dollars in savings? Well, the, the, the government, when they were originally doing their so-called consultations on this uh, with the school boards in the fall, they said, look, we, we are looking for um, a, a, a $1 billion savings in the next budget from education. So that makes sense then. And what they did is they made a decision that the way they're going to save that money from education is by cutting teachers. And the other move is to uh, amalgamate school boards, which we've heard uh, as well. Yeah, I mean, we've heard some rumors about that. I don't know that um, they're going to do that or not. I mean, I always laugh that, you know, really, at the end of the day, school boards are forced to make these calls, as as the chair was saying. You know, they're forced to make these calls because they don't hold the purse strings. And so uh, I think, you know, government uh, probably would rather that the school boards wore some of these just difficult decisions. Uh, but, you know, they're, they're, we have a very lean 
um, education system, right? There's there's not a lot of access there. And like the students were saying to me yesterday, it's most of them are in classes right now of you know 32 students. So you know they don't have they don't have a lot of technology in the classrooms. They don't have any extra. There's no frills. So there's not a lot of room to cut. So again, that's why they're cutting teachers, and that will impact education outcomes. We're chatting with uh, Merritt Styles, education critic for the Ontario NDP, here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick Samprin in for Scott today. Uh, we had Education Minister Lisa Thompson on the program yesterday, and she basically said there's not going to be any involuntary job losses. However, if you cut an art class, for instance, uh, where does that art teacher go? M- my thinking is probably the unemployment line because there's not going to be another art class opening up at another school. That's right. So, you know, you, you declare these folks surplus, they're gone, right? And, and, and that's the other piece of this, actually. It's an interesting part because what we're finding and talking to boards is that the big concern is also that the classes that require small numbers, things like shop classes and stuff, where you just for safety purposes, you need to have a smaller number of students in the class, um, those are going to be the first to go. So the, some of our schools will start to drop things like art, music, shop classes, um, skilled trade type classes, because, and that's really unfortunate. You know, the government and, and this minister keep talking about, you know, science, math. Well, okay, great. That is a very important. But, you know, actually we have um, a big creative industry in this country. It's a huge part of our economy. Um, and also, frankly, you know, we need people to get into skilled trades, right? There's a shortage. So you get rid of those things. Um, that's going to affect the economy. Um, and also, those are often the courses that keep kids in school, right? They're the things that a lot of kids find that's where they, they find the most fulfillment, and sometimes they succeed in those classes and not in other things. I'm worried we're going to see graduation rates decline. Well, my worry, too, is uh, I'm not sure this government sees the end goal. I, I understand the need to to save money and, and, and looking at the deficit and, and trimming budgets. That all makes, um, you know, financial sense. But the end result here uh, at the end of the day is not only will teachers be losing their jobs, but students, the ones that we should be educating, are going to be suffering as well. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the part of it that I find really disturbing um, because, this is about kids who will not have the one-on-one help that they need in school, right? And that's what they keep saying to us. And I think that's a really reasonable thing to be concerned about. You know, they don't want to have to fight for attention from their teacher. And and teachers are saying to me and to others that one of the problems they have right now even is, you know, there are a lot of kids in schools right now with complex needs. So the ki- there's just going to be less time and attention for, for all those students. A lot of students are going to drop off the the edge there that way, and and that's really unfortunate. So, you know, we know that you 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 got to be able to provide that time. It's what what makes students that helps them learn. It helps them excel, and and so really at the end of the day, I don't understand how this government thinks this can improve our education system. Um, this is going to hurt kids. It's going to um, create fewer good learning opportunities for them. And, uh, and at the end of the day, you know, that is our future. Those are, that's the future. That's the future workers in our, in our economy. And if, if they're not being well-schooled, that's going to be a problem for all of us. There, there are people listening right now thinking, okay, so what would the NDP do? Yeah. 
Well, you know, we, we've been saying, I mean, and we said this in the last election as well, and we've been saying it for a long time, but we really think that we need to really rethink how we fund education. The whole formula they use is kind of doesn't work well. We need to be making sure that our resources certainly are going into classrooms, but we also need to, like, um, we need to invest in education. You know, this gov- I'll tell you, the Ford government, um, they talk about the need to cut here and there, but they find the money to do things like give big tax cuts to very wealthy people and big well, big corporations. And we think it's about priorities, right? We think that um, those dollars coming out of education, that is not where we should be taking dollars. They're finding the money to change our license plate and our provincial logo. <laughs> exactly. And also finding <laughs> lots of plumb positions for uh, failed conservative candidates on the on the Ford gravy train, boy. <laughs> so, you know... <laughs> There, there, this is a bit of a, a fiction out there, and 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 so you know the big budget items for the government, for the provincial government, are definitely healthcare and education, but that's because they are so important, and um, I can't think of anything really much more important than than how we. Um, the, the opportunities we provide our children in the public education system. Uh, our guest this afternoon, Merritt Stiles, education critic for the Ontario NDP. We're talking about uh, the new education reality that the Ford government is uh, bringing in to this province. And here's where we start to get a little bit into the mud. Uh, yesterday on the John Oakley Show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto, uh, Premier Doug Ford was a guest in the show and said, quote, uh, in in regards to yesterday's student protest, this is strictly from the union thugs, as I call them, the teachers' union, one of the most powerful unions in the entire country. There's finally a government with a backbone that wants our kids to start learning math. Your response? Uh, Doug Ford's trying to divide everyone, right? He's starting to use this kind of inflammatory language like that because... He's trying to distract from the fact that what he's actually doing, again, is he's cutting classrooms. So he wants everybody, he wants to divide parents from teachers and unions, and he wants to divide the kids from all that. And the truth is that (laughs) there is no question that what he's proposing to do is going to um, impact kids most of all. He doesn't want to give the kids the credit for what they did yesterday, which is to to get out there and, and protest themselves. Uh, they have a voice. They want to be heard. It's easy for him to blame unions, but at the end of the day, uh, this is about the kids. <laughs> no, I mean, there's no, to no one's surprise, the NDP has tremendous support from the unions. Uh, so are you dismissing any possibility that the unions have nudged the students to say, hey, you got to take the, you got to help us out here. You got to take up this challenge. You know, I, I honestly, I was, I, I, I think the students, and I've talked to the student organizers who did this, they're the same students that organized um, across the province for the walkouts in the fall when they were posting the, the change to the sex ed curriculum and the indigenous curriculum. It's the same students. They are nonpartisan. They are not, they are not interested in talking about the teachers' unions. They are very much focused on how this is going to impact them. And you know what? They... I think what's interesting here, too, is like they have the tools to organize, right? When I was a teenager, uh, we didn't have social media, and so it was hard to organize. We couldn't have imagined organizing kids to walk out across the province. But these young people, they're smart, they're organized, they have the tools to do it, and they did. And, you know, I, tomorrow, actually, at Queen's Park, there's going to be a really big rally um, that the unions will be involved in, and parents will come, and kids will come, too. But that one is being organized by the unions, and they're proud of it, and they're very open about that. And that one's at Queen's Park at uh, 2 o'clock, and that should be a, a, a rowdy affair, to say the least, that's for sure. Um, yeah, I, yeah. I was going to say, this all seems a little too familiar uh, when we hearken back to the Harris government and how it... Um, 
I'm not sure revolutionized is the correct word, but how it put its mitts all over the education system. And uh, I think teachers, even to this day, remember how difficult it was way back when. Yeah, sure. You know, there's um, there are teachers who still remember those days, and a lot of us do. Um, it was uh, it was brutal, and and uh, I think we've taken many years to try to build back our education system. Um, you know, the liberals made mistakes too. Uh, there's no question. I, I you know, there's a lot of things that we could and should be doing better. Um, and but this government's proposal is going to take things from bad to worse. Uh, we have a very stripped down, very lean education system in this province, actually, um, and uh, there's not a whole lot of fat to cut, I'll be honest. I mean, uh, even on the administrative side. So so what we really need to be doing is actually thinking about um, investing. And, you know, we get a payoff. That's the great thing about education, too, is if you if you put the tools in the hands of the kids and the teachers, you're going to get better results. Merit, uh, fabulous discussion. Thanks for joining us today, and enjoy the rally and the weekend. Thank you so much. Merit Stiles, education critic for the Ontario NDP, joining us here on the Scott Thompson Show. Some, uh, well, a few things to chew on. I don't think there's an easy answer in terms of improving our education system, but I don't think the answer is cutting jobs. Again, we had Education Minister Lisa Thompson on the program yesterday. We're going to play a clip of that, uh, or at least a portion of the interview, in a matter of seconds here, in terms of uh, you know, how the government has decided on this course of action. So let's hear from the education minister. Students should be in the classroom learning, but I can tell you this. I will never, and the PC government of Ontario, will never play political games in the classroom. And again, I, I really stress the fact that teachers should be in front of their students in the classroom focusing on their curriculum because, again, this is all about student success and we want to make sure that when students are to be in the classroom, they're learning the fundamentals and the basics because it's all about that successful career path going forward. Do you think these students are being used as political pawns here? Well, you know, I think it's it's very safe to say that in the past we saw union bosses organize student walkouts under the previous Liberal government So it does raise a little bit of concern for me, but I can tell you I am never going to play political games in the classroom. And uh, anyone that chooses to is doing a disservice to students. Yeah, I'm not sure the unions are saying, hey, uh, Susie, hey, Johnny, uh, let's organize a rally tomorrow and walk out. And again, it wasn't wasn't an all-day walkout. So how much school did they really miss? Not a whole heck of a lot. At the end of the day, not a whole heck of a lot. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Interesting discussion, and it always is when we talk about vaccines and vaccinations. Great reports that you probably heard this morning on 900 CHML News from Global News, Carolyn Lieberman. Uh, We'll play that, uh, well, at least a bit of that report for you to get uh, a precursor to what we're going to talk to with our next guest. With three children under the age of five, this Toronto mother worries about what the eldest is bringing home from school that could put the youngest at risk. Reports of uh, outbreaks now, which is kind of worrying that it never has been before, even five years ago, wasn't that high, but now you can hear that there's measles. By age six, most children should have received the bulk of their vaccines to ensure lifelong protection. 
but last school year, only 76% of seven-year-olds had their vaccine for the measles, as an example. That's a lot of people. This grandfather has strong opinions when it comes to vaccinations, because three-year-old Clark will be starting school soon. It should be mandatory. It's your children before they go anywhere, they should be mandatorily vaccinated. So why wouldn't a quarter of kids be up to date with their vaccines? Some students who are new to the country or who may not have any records have to restart their vaccination series and so it can take time for them to get up to date. Others may be vaccinated but have not provided the records. Still, some might be delaying vaccinating their children on purpose. To them, this message go talk to their doctor. If they want to go online, go to a website that gives good scientific information to make sure that they make an informed choice. Because the risks can be deadly, as seen most recently in Europe, where the number of recorded measles cases more than tripled between 2017 and 2018. To that end, doctors in this province warning that misinformation being spread online is undermining, still, public trust in vaccines. The Ontario Medical Association, which represents more than 30,000 doctors in this province, has launched a public awareness campaign through Twitter, Facebook, traditional media as well, in a bid to combat myths around vaccines. The doctors are joining the growing ranks of health and government officials who are warning of the consequences of not receiving routine immunizations. Joining us now is Ian Culbert's Executive Director of the Canadian Public Health Association. Uh, Ian, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us here on the program. Good afternoon. Thank you for having me. Still surprised that the truth about vaccines is still in in many regards being beaten by the myths around vaccines? Surprised, uh, but not surprised. Uh, we're in an, uh, an age when uh, with so much uh, access to information on the internet, um, little fears in parents especially can be blown out of proportion by the misinformation that's out there. Uh, these sites and these people really prey on parents' fear. Parents always want to do what is best for their child. And these, these sites, these people who are convinced that vaccines aren't the right decision to make for children, uh, really prey on those fears. And, and what we need to do is support parents to make sure that they're confident that the recommendations that uh, science and, and governments are, are giving are, in fact, not only right for their children, but uh, they're safe. I find it extremely interesting that these parents who uh, do not have their children up to date with their vaccines are more worried about the vaccines than they are the illnesses. That's scary to me. It is. But it's also kind of logical in so much as many people have never seen a case of measles. Most have never seen what polio, the impact of polio, uh, whooping cough, all of these uh, conditions that are vaccine preventable. Uh, they aren't very uh, uh, common because vaccines work so well. So the fear of something that might happen in the future is much less than the perceived risk of the actual vaccination. And that's where, once again, these people who are feeding misinformation are seeding those fears and seeding that doubt by saying, by providing inaccurate information about potential dangers. The vaccines are safe for children. And the, the schedules that have been established are also safe. 
So these uh, parents are willing to roll the dice on their children's health because they're, uh, and I'm just trying to put myself in their mind, in their uh, uh, you know space of mind, um, they're thinking that, you know, what are the odds of my child getting the measles? Hasn't been around for decades. I think that's one of the uh, scenarios that you're looking at. Uh, they're thinking that, well, if all the other kids have been vaccinated, then my kid doesn't have to be because what are the chances? It's, it's, it's slim. I've never seen this disease. And then there's that fear bit of, well, I've heard that maybe it could. And that fear says promotes that they don't have the kids immunized. And that's the piece that we really have to help parents along with to help them understand that vaccines are, in fact, safe. Right now, there are measles outbreaks in B.C., uh, the U.S., uh, in Europe, in places like France and the Ukraine. Um, do you think these types of stories will trigger a response to, to those who haven't immunized their children to now take action because now this is a reality? This is a thing? This is an outbreak? We certainly hope that uh, increased awareness that measles hasn't been eradicated in the world uh, will get parents thinking about this. Do they really want to take that chance with their child? Uh, and, and knowing that uh, in, in fact, if they're going to travel, it's essential that they uh, get their kids vaccinated. And also to think about there are members of our community uh, that cannot be vaccinated. So very young children under the uh, age of six months, anyone who has a compromised immune system. So if you know a kid that's going through a childhood cancer, they're especially at risk of measles. So maybe you say your kid can get it and the recovery will be okay. But what damage could it be doing to someone else in your community, someone else in your family? There are a number of myths that have been um, spread online. Probably the most popular of them, or at least the one that caught uh, the, the, the biggest wildfire, was that vaccines cause autism. And that goes back to a 1997 study that has since been uh, completely 100% discredited. Uh, it appeared in The Lancet, which is you know a prestigious medical journal, but it stated that vaccines cause autism. And that really seemed to... Uh, give rise to the anti-vax movement? It certainly did. And, and uh, my heart goes out to any parent who has a child on the autism spectrum um, because we don't necessarily know what causes that to happen. Uh, those parents are desperately searching for something. And unfortunately, this discredited scientist uh, gave them something and, and it has grown. And unfortunately, instead of being ashamed of what he did uh, by uh, misinforming people, by cheating the system, uh, this scientist has doubled down and continues to try to uh, peddle this myth. It is absolutely false. The measles, mumps, rubella vaccine does not cause autism. We're chatting with uh, Ian Culbert, Executive Director of the Canadian Public Health Association, regarding the misinformation online that's stoking fears of vaccinations among Canadians still to this day. Another myth, and you mentioned the vaccination schedule. Another myth out there is that infant immune systems simply can't handle all these vaccines. 
Once again, extensive testing has gone into these schedules to understand uh, when is the best time to protect children against uh, these vaccine-preventable diseases and to make sure that, that uh, you're not doing any harm. And it's it's one of those very compelling pieces of misinformation that's out there. It's like, oh, this little baby, the system po- can't possibly take two or three injections uh, of vaccines. Yes, they can. It is proven to be safe. If your child has some uh, special condition, then your doctor is aware of that and will develop a modified schedule for your child. But if your child is otherwise healthy, then the standard schedule of vaccinations is the right one for them. Another myth that I've heard and and certainly read online is, you know, my child's natural immunity is going to be better than a vaccine-acquired Immunity. You know, if my child gets sick, well, uh, the the boy or girl will build up that immunity to that illness and will be better for it down the road. The problem with that is, first, who else might they get sick because of whatever condition they have, maybe chicken pox and, and measles, and can that other person actually withstand the disease? And uh, the fact is, you don't know that your child's not going to have a more severe reaction to that disease. In even normal circumstances, uh, serious health uh, uh, implications can result from what are seemingly um, innocuous uh, childhood infections, such as chickenpox. So uh, why would you take that chance when we have a safe, effective alternative, and that's a vaccine? Well, we had an incident uh, just last month, in fact, at the um, Vaughn Mill Shopping Center in Vaughn, Ontario, where uh, there was a person with measles and uh, I guess public health officials uh, had recognized that other people may have been impacted or, or affected by this. How quickly can this spread? Well, if you're not vaccinated, if you're not, uh, if you don't have immunity to measles, and in if you're in an area where someone who is uh, who has the condition who, who is contagious, um, measles is airborne; it's transmitted through the air. So it, you don't even have to touch anything. You can just be walking through a space where that person has been, where they have breathed, where they have sneezed or coughed. Uh, you can pick it up. It stays on surfaces for up to two hours. So, uh, it, and it is a highly uh, transmissible, very uh, contagious uh, disease. Uh, so obviously, we should be concerned. Absolutely. Uh, And that's where if you know you've been vaccinated uh, and you've had both doses of your uh, measles vaccine, you don't have to be concerned. But if that's not the condition, then you you should be uh, talking to your healthcare provider about uh, getting your vaccinations up to date. For these children who are not vaccinated, and, and we heard in Carolyn Lieberman's report from Global News off the top that upwards of uh, you know twenty five percent in at least one school district where seven year olds were not up to date with their vaccines. Once these children become adults or old enough to say, hey, you know what, I do now want to be vaccinated. What does the schedule look like then? Is it, is it the same as when they were a child, or is it more advanced? Uh, it becomes more advanced, and it all depends on the individual case of, of the person you're talking to, but they will try to uh, bring a person up to schedule as quickly as possible. And it's a really interesting scenario that you're describing because uh, we're hearing about stories in the States where uh, young uh, uh, like adolescents are finding out they're 
haven't been immunized and they're doing their own research and saying, mom, dad, what have you done? I want to get immunized. Uh, Why have you put me in this risky situation? You bring up a great point. There was, I don't remember the state, but there was, there's a family and the entire family is anti-vaccine except for this one uh, child. It's it's a boy. And I think he had just turned 18 and is now starting to get his uh, vaccinations because he has done some research and now disagrees with his parents and his and his siblings to say, no, I, I want to be uh, vaccinated. And um uh, we heard from the mother who said that, you know, we're, we're having some interesting dinner conversations because of this new reality in her family. So, uh, I mean, it's being done. There there are, uh, you know, children who are growing up now saying, hey, now that I, I'm old enough to get uh, or make my own decisions, I, w- I want these vaccines. It's It's interesting to see. It is. And what we see, once again, is parents are trying to do the best for their children. And, and so I'm never going to criticize a parent who whose intentions are in the right place. But we are at this point in time where this feeling of, well, I think that maybe, or this doesn't feel quite right to me, is given more credence than uh, volumes and volumes of scientific research. And so we need to balance that out again. Yes, parents have the right to make uh, a choice for uh, their children, but we want to make sure they have all of the correct information before they make uh, a bad decision. I, I uh, got a chuckle several years ago when someone that I know uh, thought the, the whole vaccination program was a government conspiracy to <laughs> to inject us with some kind of sickness because later on in life, uh, you know, we'll have to rely on uh, the public health care system. Well, my favorite is, uh, and I hope I can say this, uh, an episode of The Simpsons where they proved that the reason why you were given the influenza vaccine in November, early December, was that it had a a component that made you want to go out and shop. (laughs) It sounds believable to me. (laughs) Uh, One one more thing I want to talk about is that uh, the herd immunity effect, and, and this is another myth that is... Uh, out there because, yeah, there could be a lot of people that's vaccinated, but that's not going to stop the spread of things like measles. That is absolutely true. Uh, For herd immunity, or or some people refer to it as community immunity, uh, you need to have 95% of your population immunized. Uh, And so that if someone comes into your community with an infectious disease, a vaccine-preventable disease, if you're at 95%, there is almost no chance that there's going to be a spread of that disease. And that 5% that, that isn't vaccinated is typically the, the number of people who, for one reason or another, cannot be vaccinated. Uh, they have uh, uh, health conditions or they're immunocompromised. So that's really the gold standard across the board for vaccine-preventable diseases. Ian, great chat today. Appreciate the time. My pleasure. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Canada's foreign minister says it was likely that foreign actors would meddle in her country's October elections. U.S. intelligence officials and uh, governments from some European Union countries have accused Russia of interfering in their elections in recent years. Allegations strongly denied, of course, by Moscow. When asked whether she was worried that Russia would interfere in the federal election this October, Christia Freeland says she was, quote, very concerned. How concerned should we be? Let's bring in our next guest, Christo Avelis, 
a social science and humanities research council postdoctoral fellow in history at the University of Toronto, and he joins us now. Christo, how are you? Uh, good, good. Thanks for having me. So should we be concerned here? Should we be worried about Russian interference or other nations or entities interfering in our elections? I mean, I think, you know, you always want to have concerns about uh, your, your the integrity of your election, and whether it's, uh, you know, just ensuring all the ballots get counted correctly to, you know, these bigger questions of, of foreign interference. I, I, I do think that's that's something to be concerned about. I don't know if it's something to be alarmist about. As they noted, there's not, uh, you know, in the same way that we've heard the direct evidence of talking about uh, Russia interfering in the United States and in certain EU countries, it hasn't quite come to Canada. I did remember reading a, a report a few months ago saying that there's little need to hack the Canadian election because at least as far as the Liberals and Conservatives go, they actually have very similar policies. Um, so it's like, well... Do you really need to rig something where the two main parties, at least, have so, so many similarities? Um, but I do think there's there's factors there. There are some mitigating factors here in Canada, too. I mean, in a lot of places still, we still use the paper and pen. You know, the paper and pencil it makes it a lot harder to rig something in that sense. But um, it is something to be concerned about, I think, but um, not to the extent that I think a lot of American you know, progressives are worried about, you know, the, this new new wave of Russophobia. What does this meddling look like, and is it primarily on social media? That's what I would say, yeah. I mean, when we talk about meddling, people often go to the worst-case scenario, which is, like, are foreign agents or other groups, um, you know, interfering with the direct counting of ballots, whether it's their hacking machines or they're getting ballots thrown out, or they're stuffing ballot boxes, or what have you. That's one level. I think much more reasonable is this acting of this foreign meddling in, in elections via the, the kind of poisoning of, of discourse. And social media does have that tool. It can be in a targeted sense, a.k.a. a foreign government spreading misinformation. Or as we saw in the last U.S. presidential election, it was people creating clickbait, not with necessarily an ideological goal, but in certain countries like Macedonia, uh, just with the goal of generating uh, ad dollars from Google uh, by, by creating fake news, which would inflame passions, be they on the right or on the left, um, and, and, and making money off that. And I think that that's certainly where the majority of this will happen, because social media is, is it's, the great thing about social media is anybody can post there, but the bad thing about social media is that anybody can post there. <laughs> uh, Christia Freeland, our foreign affairs minister, is meeting with uh, her counterparts uh, overseas uh, as we speak, and and basically has said that you know their discussions, their target is not really aimed at securing uh, a particular outcome, or at least the the election meddlers are not really seeking, at least in this country, a particular outcome, but just to polarize our society and our in our thought process. Is she on the, is she on the right path there? I mean, I think that's an interesting perspective. You know, I think if you do want to talk about you know, achieving a certain objective, I think one of the, the, the weaknesses Canada has is our electoral system. Our electoral system makes it so that, you know, you can actually win an election by having, you know, a very small percentage of the vote and win all the power, and it allows you to win absolute power by just having the right votes in the right areas. And our system would be susceptible to rigging in that sense. You could tar- be it by, you know, targeting the actual voting process or by targeting your fake news to certain jurisdictions in the country where the votes are are particularly close. Uh, In terms of this broader question of, you know, what's the goal? I mean, I I, I see that as a reasonable claim, although you could argue that in Canada we have issues around around polarization that are due to our own policies. I mean, this government 
uh, you know, hasn't done anything to address, you know, tax evasion by the wealthiest Canadians. They haven't done anything to address the fact that, you know, wealthy Canadians continue to do quite well. Uh, while a lot of working and middle-class Canadians continue to struggle, um, all of these sorts of things create polarization as well. So is the fake news from foreign actors creating polarization or is it exposing it? I mean, these are these are questions to be asked. Does Christia Freeland have, for instance, a motivation um, by saying, "Well, they're just trying to divide us"? Is she trying to, you know, preclude the, the places where we actually are already all, where we are actually already divided, and trying to patch that over by calling it foreign interference? Who knows? Uh, our guest is uh, Christo Avelis, Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council postdoctoral fellow in uh, history at the University of Toronto here on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Rick, in for Scott today. Um, because there isn't a social media police per se, h- how do we stop this? Can this be stopped? I mean, in terms of stopping it, I don't think you can ever stop it. Um, because even before social media, like, you know, there was... You know, there used to be a lot more newspapers, and some of them were rags or seen as rags, and some of them were seen as reputable, and there was a lot in between. And, you know, there's always been fake news. There's always been fake news. In terms of stopping it, I don't think you can. I think in terms of, of understanding it, I think it, there's a, we have to kind of do better as citizens. We have to do better as citizens when we, uh, we're interrogating our sources. Not only when we disagree with them, but frankly, especially when we do. When we agree with something, that's when we should be especially vigilant because we, you know, you're less likely to question your own assumptions when they when they agree with your worldview. Um, we have to do better in that regard. You know, we have to uh, do better. I think longer term in uh, you know educating uh, young people. Uh, you know, in our civics classes, I think there needs to be an increased prevalence on on not just on you know understanding our political process, what the political parties are, how they work, what have you, how voting works, but perhaps including elements of media literacy. You know, how to understand what is a real source, how to look at what a real journalist is. What, does a, what are the elements of a, of a clickbait article versus a, a, a real journalistic article? Or what, what, what's the difference between, you know, a, a, a good faith editorial and actual, say, quote-unquote, journalism, both of which have value but different objectives, right? So I think that that's something we need to do. And again, I, and I didn't want to harp on this, but I think, honestly, if we want to limit the effects of this, our voting system is broken in terms of helping us. The w- realities of our voting system is there, there's temptations to, t- to tamper because a few hundred votes in a few key ridings can flip an entire election. And if we had a proportional system, we can't rig it. This is the whole season about the, the theory of the Russian meddling in the United States. Donald Trump won because he got the right votes in the right places, even though he got far fewer of them. If it was one person, one vote, all the Russian tampering in the world wouldn't have gotten Donald Trump that election. But when it's a few thousand people in Wisconsin and Ohio and Florida and, and, and you know, in, in Michigan, then, then, you can, then you can have a, a major effect with even minor levels of, of, of voter disinformation. Given that, we only have a couple minutes left in this discussion. Do you think there is more of an appetite for change? Um uh, with Canada's electoral system, and I know, I know that's been tossed around uh, over the last number of uh, election cycles, but do you think the the threat of election meddling is going to further that discussion? I mean, I'm not sure if people are going to make that connection. I mean, that's something that I see. I don't know if that's what the average person sees. In terms of meddling, I think some people have said in terms of, I'm understanding that, there's been, I think, a growing desire to look into accountability policies, uh, uh, via governments between on, on sites like Facebook. I know MP Charlie Angus from the NDP, he went over to England where they had this multinational 
hearing uh, with Facebook officials, basically, to talk about how we can keep sites like Facebook accountable because they are global institutions. In terms of electoral reform, I mean, who knows? It was defeated in British Columbia, but uh, the, in, in Quebec, it looks like they're moving towards electoral reform. And the Green Party, who uh, at least right now is, looks, appears in, in first place in, in, in PEI, has that as an official policy. So we might see it implemented in those two provinces uh, to start it off. We shall see. Presto, appreciate the time today. Thanks for having me. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.